This is the latest of the podcast series for the publication of the fourth edition of Wilmot Smith on Construction Contracts. Today we have the we have chapter twelve, damages for breach of contract, and I'm joined by Ruth Keating, barrister at Thirty Nine Essex Chambers, uh, who contributed to the chapter. Hello, Ruth. Hi, Paul. And uh, what? Tell me. I mean, perhaps I shouldn't ask you this now after the book's written, so we can all relax. But uh, tell me about the experience of being involved in writing a book like this in a chambers like this. Traumatizing, Paul. Um, I'm, I'm just joking. So I've never been no, involved. You're not. No, 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 you're not. <laughs> There's a hint of truth in my eyes, I think, with that. Um, I've never been involved in editing a chapter. I have written book chapters from scratch before. And there were various points with the exercise where I did wonder whether it would be easier just to write a book chapter from scratch. Have you read Lord Justice Coulson's introduction or preface, whatever the, the technical term is, where he talks about writing Keating, uh, writing um, Coulson on adjudication and saying, you know, uh, the, the new, new edition and being sure by the end it would have been just easier to <laughs> start at the beginning? Well, I think that's very relatable, Paul, and really does capture my, my feelings. But I learned a lot, which was great. And it was also really nice then to chat about the experience with other members of Chambers then afterwards yeah. as well. It's very interesting because when you do a book chapter, whether it's editing it, writing it or, or, or whatever, or some combination, your level of knowledge of the subject really does increase. The other thing I think you learn is that um, you're always looking for the next edition. Exactly. Because you think, I mean, I, I, until you've done it, you think that's mad. But what you're thinking is, well, hang on, I could deal with this bit a bit differently, or we could amplify that, or think about adding that in. You know, obviously, we're thinking about the structure of the fifth edition at the moment. But in the individual chapters, there's always scope for, um, you know, um, adding things, restructuring. Of course, Paul. Yeah. And I think you can't help but notice that. So even now, as you say, when I read a case, I'm doing it subconsciously, you think that would be good for the damages section. Or I mean, very much with this chapter, I think, as we've discussed before, it's not a case in most cases, save, you know, some examples of there being a whole rewrite of the case law. Of course, there's not. There's been centuries of case law on it. But you do see the courts tipping things along. And you see that in case a lot. I mean, you've obviously had your recent case of triple point in the Supreme Court. Uh, and that's another example where when you read that, you think, well, that'll be part of the fifth edition as well. So things are always moving along as well. With a black edge around it. Yes, of course. Understandably, yeah. I don't know if I should raid triple <laughs> no, point no. or whether you're all talked oh, no, out no, no. this week I, on that. I, no, no, I, I'm... I'm um to argue the case in the Supreme Court was an absolute delight. Um, and, and of course, as you say, it'll end up somewhere. And, uh, and triple point is quite a good illustration because the exemption clauses liability, obviously in the, ch the relevant chapter, it will, you can just think of all the different chapters triple point will end up being in. Exactly. Um, and I think it's interesting in chapter 12. So you've got a couple of examples of that. You have M.T. Hogard, you have Morris Garner, obviously fifth edition, you'll have triple point. And normally I think you find when these cases do go to the Supreme Court, of course, they're not going to the Supreme Court every week. So when the Supreme Court get their hands on them, there's lots of different issues that people want to discuss. Loads of different points are raised. And I often think actually different judges as well have different interests. So when it gets to the Supreme Court, they want to have a comment on it. And so it's always developing. It'd be very interesting to see, for example, you know, how Lord Leggett, who's obviously um, who gave one of the judgments a triple point, he's obviously you know, going to make his mark in these areas. And there are some areas that he's more interested than others. Of course, having Lord Burroughs there, who's done the, the re contract restatement book, obviously helps as well. But exactly. you, came to the, you came to this chapter 
Uh, and for those who are li listening, how we did it was we did a mechanical search to begin with of all the comments and all the cases that are so far cited before we then did our research across the various other bits of material, some linked to construction source law, some not. So you're presented with sort of some basic raw material. What do you then do? Well, it's interesting, Paul. I think, you know, you start with this basic raw material, which, you know, basic, but there is normally quite expansive. And there really is an editing process even in whittling down that information because you can't, you know, refer at length to all of these interesting cases. You also have to be mindful that you might find something really interesting, but what is the reader of the chapter going to want to do? They might want to read three pages about your views on a particular case. They want the information, they want the salient facts. And then, of course, as you say, you can't help but after you've done maybe the first draft of re-editing the chapter, notice all of these other different cases that come up in practice and want to include them as well. So I think um, my dad actually is a painter and he always says, you know, when is a, paint, a painting done? He says, when I'm sick of it. And I think there's probably a little bit of that with a book chapter where you think you could be constantly reading the cases and adding different comments into the chapter as you go along. And of course, every decided case now is on the internet or available in one form or another. Whereas if people, you know, writing books 30 years ago, all they had were the law reports indexes and the, and exactly. the physical law reports and, and occasionally an unreported case that you'd managed to get that nobody else had, yes. which you took advantage of. And um, I, I'm sure you're right about that. So you then, you, you then essentially edit up the chapter. What particular highlights stood out for you this um, of the recent developments and how's the chapter changed? Well, I think there's really two strands of it, Paul. So the first is that, as I've said, we have these established principles that have been developed over centuries. Uh, but what we do see is the court edging them along. So I think two interesting examples of that are that we've had further guidance on a problem which arises a lot in practice, which is how do you measure damages when you could choose diminution in value or you could choose the cost of repairs? Of course, an issue that comes up in construction a lot. Um, and the kind of practical point from some of those cases of how do you measure the law? So you have examples of cases like, let's say, Moore National Westminster Bank, where one party is giving damages of £115,000, the other is giving damages of £15,000. And the court says at the end, well, maybe if you'd given something in the middle, we might have been able to choose a figure more moderately spaced between you, but we have to divide between. So the kind of Solomon approach. So lots of interesting developments of those kinds of principles being edged along. And I think also, as I've said, some other big cases that have come along. So Morris Garner and one stepping a big example of that, where we have the Supreme Court having a definitive statement on Roven Park damages um, and their application in contract and construction cases. It's quite interesting, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you've got the grand statements of principle by the Supreme Court, on the one hand, or the Court of Appeal sometimes, depends on, 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 on where it is. One has to remember that in reality, the Court of Appeal gets through their work much more quickly than the Supreme Court, and therefore the, the Supreme Court has longer to think about this, exactly. some of these knotty issues. But then you've got the individual illustrations of how the principles are applied. Both of them can edge it along, can't they, in different ways. But for practitioners, the illustrations can in fact be quite helpful, particularly in an area of damages where you're trying to apply principles to diffuse facts. Exactly. So I think an example of that is, of course, the Supreme Court are trying to give these broad espousals of principle. And the question for practitioners is, well, how is that going to apply to my case? And of course, you normally don't want to be the first case, I think, after Supreme Court judgment either. It's not a very comfortable position to be in, to be advising a client. But, you know, even in terms of getting into the nitty gritty of examples, I do think appellate courts are trying to do that more. So there's a colourful example, even in um, Morris Garner, where it's an 18th century case, which I quite like. It's a chimney 
chimney sweep who found a jewel and then he went into a shop to try sell it. You know, as, as luck would have it, he comes back and it's empty and they have to try assess the loss. And, you know, I think it's interesting that even you know, three centuries after that, we're having the Supreme Court citing those examples. It's only an example the courts are giving, but what they're trying to say is when you're assessing damages, sometimes you need to be creative in terms of how you do that. But most importantly, you need to be robust. And I think that's the advice that's coming out and the advice we're all going to have to put into advising and practicing in cases as well. Yeah. And um, um, the other thing that a new edition gives you a chance to do is to, as you go through, sort of have another look at what's gone in the previous edition. Exactly. So I think looking at the previous edition, that's another good example of that, Paul. So, you know, you often need to have these kind of tea leave exercises um, when you're drafting a book. Um, I was certainly conscious of trying to put in ones that we could stand by maybe in the next edition. But that's an interesting example taking again you know, the Supreme Court um, and Robin Park damages, they've really closed that door up a lot more than they had in the previous edition. Um, and so whereas the previous edition might have said um, that it might have been possible to raise them in a the case, now it's really going to be an exceptional circumstance where you yeah. can do it. One of the things I like about, um, from my personal point of view, about editing a chapter, is you do end up with a perspective on the structure and, and I, I, mean, I don't know whether I, I don't think the structure of the chapter changed much. I think, I think, um, I think that 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 the perspective that's in the fourth edition is the same general perspective as the first edition. Do you think that's that's fair? That's very true, Paul. On this, so again, the structure is very much the same. But what we've tried to do is put in, okay, what are the courts concerned about? Where are cases falling down? Where are damages not being fully assessed? And how can you evidence things in a way that's going to be robust? And you're not going to find yourself again with the court of appeal or the Supreme Court and the other side of the table to you yeah i, mean, I think the evidence point is very important particularly for a practitioner's book um to mean that actually people can have a look at it and just see how do you go about doing this and i think it is this chapter in particular is sort of it's got sort of quite a lot of practical guidance in it um and um we hope that'll that'll help people Exactly. Where do you see? Did you see any developments of principle for the you know, over the next few years, or is it going to be more illustration and edging forward a bit? I think illustration and edging forward, certainly. I think what the courts are really looking at, of course, triple point liquidated damages. I think we're going to see a lot more in light of triple point. Some of the interesting points are interpretation of contracts, terms that essentially almost become self-defeating if you read them against each other. And I think that's what's going to be maybe, let's say, reflected in the next chapter of the, of the next edition, is how are the courts reading the specific contracts, the specific damages clauses, and how can you be robust when they're drafting them now? So hopefully you're not cited as the interesting case in the fifth edition on interpretation well triple point of course quite an interesting illustration there because um without going into the detail of it um the both lord leggett and lady arden who gave the two leading judgments uh, contained two or three paragraphs in each judgment which was strongly supportive of the concept of liquidated damages because of it being certain pre-ascertained the absence of need to have proof uh, and i think that that does fit in with you know, as you say, the edging forward, nothing dramatic in terms of interpretation. That's what they've always been. But the courts are sitting there thinking, well, if we have a pre-agreed, predetermined, enforceable sum, then we can enforce that and avoid all these interesting questions about remoteness, causation, linkage, etc., etc. 
Exactly. I think that's certainly right, Paul. And the theme that comes out in the chapter is looking at all the courts saying, look, we accept there's going to be uncertainty when you're trying to assess damages because you're almost trying to look at what could have been. And there's no certainty with that. There's no 2020. There's no magic figure. But I think you're very right. What the courts are trying to do is if they can't have certainty in terms of the amount, they're trying to have certainty in terms of the parties. And so liquidated damages, you say, great example of that because the court can at least guarantee fairness um, insofar as they think they can. I also think there's quite an interesting tension in damages between, on the one hand, trying to get a simple, clear answer, on the other hand, recognising that this is you know, inevitably factually and legally complex. So I think there's quite a lot of ju- juggling to be done there. And I suspect from what you say, and it's my own experience as well, the, the pragmatism is sort of slightly taking over from the let's scratch our heads and say how difficult it is. Exactly, because ultimately, the you know, particularly the courts in England and Wales, they're famous or they're regarded across the world as giving commercial certainty to parties. And what those commercial parties don't want to do as much as we as lawyers like it is to come into court and say, my, my, what an interesting question. What are we going to answer to that? They don't want that. They want a figure. And they also want to know when they have other projects in the UK and abroad um, that they're going to have certainty in terms of what the damages might be if things don't go as according to plan. I think that's also the case in Southern Ireland. Um, where you and I have both had a, a historical involvement. I think that the, the pragmatism of the courts there is not identical, but certainly has very similar strands. I think very much to, the same, yeah. Yeah, they're trying to get to a sort of simple, clear answer without too much time and money being spent. And I think that is, you do see that sort of quite interesting trend in the way the authorities work. Absolutely, um, we can't have too much of this certainty, though. You know, it means that uh, there won't be as much to argue about. No, but no. <laughs> in fact, in fact that, that, as we both know, that's always wrong. The reality is when you create certainty, you only create more disputes. And so, exactly. So it, it, it's, a self, it's a self-funding and self-regenerating self, um, regenerating network. Exactly, well, Paul. More cl- claimants and appellants coming out of the shadows. So I think that's w- right. W- well, you very kindly said you're up for the fifth edition, which is great. And I say that publicly so that you can't get out of it. Of course. <laughs> uh, the trauma, the trauma will, um, um, it, it was, of course, you know, like everything, getting it finished in the end. But we were very lucky, all of us, because we had a jolly good time. People, um, the editorial team all performed. Um, well, I have to say that, don't I? But nearly all performed. Um, and, 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 we got it, and, and we got it done. Um, I have to say that... Um, it's been like doing a case, you know, an extra week's preparation would always help. An Absolutely. extra week would have helped. But we got it done. And as I say, I, I personally am very, you know, very proud of the whole book, but I'm I'm um very pleased with chapter twelve because, you know, as I dip into it and <laughs> in and out, you, you find practical advice. So I think we've done our best to, to help those who read. And for anyone that's listening, you should know by the way that if you're having trouble getting a copy, it's because the first print run has sold out. So Thank you all very much. And Ruth, thank you for all your help with it. And as I say, I look forward to the fifth edition. Brilliant. Thanks, Paul. Looking forward to it.